the marriage feast, or we could call this the royal marriage feast. Jewish weddings in Bible times were big social gatherings. Um, we consider weddings to be a big deal today, but you ain't seen nothing yet unless you went to a Bible wedding, a New Testament time Jewish wedding. It would last for five to seven days. I mean, they didn't have these opportunities very often, so they, made, <laughs> they capitalized on them when they had them. A Jewish wedding typically included a much larger crowd than the ceremony itself. So if you happen to have more people at your reception than at the ceremony, don't feel bad. Jesus used this familiar social setting in His day to emphasize that the great gospel feast, and this is what we're reading about today, about to read, is not to be confused with the marriage supper of the Lamb. There are some features that would cause you to confuse the two perhaps, but please do not do so. This familiar social setting Jesus used to emphasize not the coming marriage supper of the Lamb, but the present gospel feast, the provision of our Lord for us in the gospel. On the surface, this parable might seem to be very similar to one we've already covered in Luke chapter 14, the parable of the Great Supper. There are some surface similarities, but that they're only on the surface. There, are, there is the matter of guests being invited. There are some who accept the invitation and some who refuse the invitation. In both parables, the, the ones who refuse the invitation give ridiculous excuses. But that's where the similarity stops. This is a totally different parable with a totally different purpose. Remember, each parable has one primary purpose. We'll talk about the differences in a moment, but let's read the parable. Matthew 22, and I'll read the first 14 verses. You read along in your Bible, if you will, please. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, or those who are invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage." But they, the ones who were bidden, invited, made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, he was angry. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden, invited, were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together uh, all as many as they found, both bad and good. That's significant. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
For many are called, but few are chosen. The differences between this parable and the parable of the Great Supper in Luke 14 are very significant. Both parables were given on different occasions. Luke's parable of the Great Supper was given during a meal at a house of a chief Pharisee, whereas Matthew's marriage feast, the one we just read about, was uttered by Christ in the temple. Different occasions. Secondly, there were different periods in Christ's ministry. In the former parable, the one in Luke chapter 14, the Pharisees had not yet openly broken with Jesus. They hated Him inwardly, but they hadn't outwardly opposed Him. But in the parable we just read, in Matthew 22, their animosity had reached a boiling point. If you read the preceding chapter and see the parables that Jesus directed at them, they were hell-bent on having this troublemaker executed. Luke's account of the parable of the Great Supper speaks of a private host. It's not a king, it's not even specified as a nobleman. But this feast was given by a king for his son. In Luke's parable, the parable of the Great Supper, the guests were discourteous, and they were just merely shut out of the festival. But here in Matthew, the guests are openly rebellious, and the judgment is they are destroyed. Their city is burned. Pretty severe. So this is not one of those stories where everybody lives happily ever after. It's a pretty heavy story. There's a guest in this story who comes to the wedding feast, not the ceremony, the wedding feast, and he doesn't have on the proper attire. And as we'll see in just a moment, it wasn't because he didn't get the memo. He didn't read the fine print on the invitation. Oh, no. It's, he's far more culpable than that. The point of this parable, and I'll give it to you up front. You'll see it as we go along. Every parable has one main point. An allegory has a bunch of points. Everything stands for something. But in a parable, there's one main point. Here's the point. Nobody is going to sneak into heaven through the back door. Nobody is going to be in heaven by mistake. The great gospel feast that we can even attend to now involves not only invited guests, but they must be prepared. Hypocrites will be exposed and ejected. This is a heavy parable. We often say it at funerals, but it needs to be said a whole lot more frequently. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Jesus told this story in a string of parables directed at the self-righteous Jews of His day who presumed that they were God's favorites and that they would be admitted to the marriage of the Messiah, the King's Son. But it's not just for Jews. 
whether Jew or Gentile, we need to ponder the all-important qualification for admission to the kingdom of heaven, and that is this. Am I a chosen one who is clothed in the required wedding garment? Am I a chosen one who is clothed in the required wedding garment? I say without apology, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. You know, it's interesting. A wedding feast should be a very happy occasion and usually is. People are all smiles on the wedding pictures. But Jesus gives this parable as a warning of judgment. He is focusing on the guilt of two classes of Christ rejectors here. He highlights them. Why was their guilt so great? The answer to that question will form the outline of the message. Two categories of Christ rejectors here, and their guilt is great. Why? Number one, they have spurned the invitation. These, in verse 3, have spurned the invitation. People continue to do that. It says, and, a certain, uh, and, and he, a certain king, sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden, invited to the wedding, and they would not come. Notice that phrase, they would not come. It does not say they could not come. Now, this was a king who gave the invitation. So he was giving it to his subjects, and he could have ordered them to come. But he wanted cheerful guests, not reluctant slaves. And so the question becomes, why would they not come? Why would they not come? That brings up a larger question for our day and time. Why do men and women not come to Christ? Why do they not repent of their sin and believe on Him? Well, with many, it's the same as it was with many in this parable. It was probably just due to mere indifference. Many that were invited probably felt, what concern do I have for kings and princes? I don't run in those circles. That's way above my pay grade. Royal marriages are for the elite. And there are people today that reason like that when it comes to the salvation and to the gospel. There are many who treat religion as a thing that certain people whose minds run in that vein have the luxury to think about. But I'm a common man. I'm a working man or a working woman. I've got more practical things to concern myself with. There are people that think that. And they're indifferent to spiritual things. If you are tempted to reason that way, I hope that what I'm about to say will help you understand the seriousness of that offense. You are insulting the very God of heaven. You're insulting the God of heaven. Just as these people who are indifferent to the invitation that was sent to the marriage feast insulted the king. First of all, you are dishonoring the king's son. Look at verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like unto, unto a certain king, which made a marriage or a marriage feast, a wedding feast for his son. We think of the second psalm, a great messianic psalm, a, song, a psalm about Messiah, about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Father is clearly speaking. I won't have you turn there, but in the second Psalm, verse 6, it is the Father who's clearly speaking when He says, Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. And the next verse talks about the Son. So this is a king. The son is a king too. By the way, it's interesting, nothing is said about the bride in this wedding. Nothing at all. She's just implied. It does take a bride and a groom to make a marriage, at least a marriage that's sanctioned by God. Well, if the bridegroom is Jesus, if he's the king's son, then the bride is the church. And elsewhere, that's made clear. Not here. The focus is not on her, but on him here. But what an honor to be invited to a royal wedding. For many years, I was in the Cayman Islands, which is a British protectorate. And Queen of England came once in 1982, and other members of the royal family came at other times. There was no royal wedding there. That would have been held at, in London at Buckingham Palace in Westminster. But let me tell you, anybody who lived in the Cayman Islands, if they were invited to see the queen, they dropped everything and changed their plans so they could be there. I mean, a king's son doesn't get married every day. Have you ever heard of anybody who was invited to a wedding of a British, a British monarchy and declined it? Of course not. And so if you refuse the gospel feast that is spread like a wedding feast for you by Jesus or for Jesus, you are not honoring the king. You are not honoring the king's son. The Bible says in John chapter 5 verse 23, Jesus said, He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Brother Thomas and I were out visiting a couple weeks ago, and he likes to use a little survey, and we got to use it several times that Saturday. And one of the questions is, do you believe the Bible? And another question is, do you believe that Jesus is God? It was, it was amazing. At least twice, maybe three times out of the people who said, yes, I believe the Bible, they did not agree with the statement that Jesus is God. Absolutely amazing. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. Amazing. Many are like Nicodemus when it came to saying nice things about Jesus. He came to Jesus by night. He thought he was going to flatter Jesus. He said, Rabbi, teacher, uh, we know that thou art come from God. No man can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. But he stopped short of saying, except he be God. Jesus wasn't flattered. He's more than a great teacher. He's more than a miracle worker. He's more than a good man. In fact, he's not absolutely good unless he is God. How much better it is, instead of stopping short of acknowledging that, to do like Thomas did, though he was a week late in doing it, but a week after Jesus was raised from the dead, and he finally saw the resurrected Christ, and he saw the nail prints and the wounded side, and he reached out his hand, 
He said, my Lord and my God. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a hard time with that one. Someone has well said, to deny the person of Christ is to renounce the gospel itself. If we are going to be accepted of Him, we must be in the Beloved. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. The Father's love for the Son is the pledge and the type of ours. You must understand. You cannot understand love unless you realize how much the Father loved the Son and the Son loves the Father. That's where it all started. And that's the love that Jesus prayed for in John 17 that would be in you and in me. Can you imagine that? what kind of love that is? Do not overlook the fact that the way God honors the marriage of His Son is by preparing a banquet of love for Him. Isn't that something? That's how He wanted to honor His Son. How generous. What a privilege to be invited. Oh, the first class of Christ rejectors here committed a great offense because they dishonored the Son by refusing the invitation. Secondly, they dismissed the finished work of Christ. You say, Pastor, I know you can see things in the Bible I don't see, but where in the world did you get that? Okay, please follow me carefully. Look at verse 4. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, which are invited. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings, my fattened cattle are killed. And notice the next phrase. If I were you, I'd underscore it in my Bible. And all things are ready. All things are ready. Come unto the marriage. As I said in a recent message on Luke chapter 14 in the Great Supper, the implication is that this readiness will not last long. Those of you who are housewives, you don't like it when the dinner guests show up late, unless for some reason you're running late with the cooking. Even 30 minutes can spoil everything. It's hard to have goodwill and be an entertaining hostess when your guests are a half hour late. As far as God is concerned, don't miss this. Everything that needs to be done for your salvation and mine has been done. Jesus cried, it is finished from the cross. He has died. The Father has been propitiated. All things are ours in Him. Pardon for sin, favor with God, peace of conscience, access to our Father, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and on and on we could go. All things are ready as far as God can make them. All that is left for us to do is come. All the fitness He requires is that you see your need of Him and come. Just come to the gospel feast. You don't have to bring a dessert. You don't have to bring a side dish. Everything is furnished, even the required wedding garment, as we'll see in a moment. Just furnish yourself. And yet many refuse to do that. Like the first category of Christ rejectors here, they make light of the invitation. Verse 5, but they made light of it. 
and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. Hey, you know, people nowadays do that, make light of the gospel invitation, and they can use Scripture to justify it, they think. I've witnessed to people, when I, when I talk to them, why, do, why have you given yourself to God? Why haven't you surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Uh, why aren't you practicing what the Bible says as far as Christianity is concerned? And sometimes they'll throw this in my face. Well, you know, a man's got to work. If a man doesn't work, he's worse than an infidel. And they use that to justify their neglect of spiritual things. I've had people do that. It's no wonder that a lost man can quote Scripture to justify his neglect of salvation. After all, the devil can quote Scripture. He probably knows more of the Bible than any of us here today. But how many people will be in hell because they focused on the temporal and the material instead of the eternal and the spiritual? They made an idol of their material possessions. And when we do that, and we use that as an excuse for neglecting our soul's salvation in the gospel, what an insult that is to the Father who provides everything. Salvation is free, but may I remind you, it is not cheap. It cost our Heavenly Father everything. It cost Him the dearest and the best, even His only begotten Son. How strange is the depravity of men's hearts that they would spurn what they need the most that is freely offered. How strange. It gets worse. Thirdly, those who resisted this invitation, who spurned it, not only they dishonor the Son, they discredited God's messengers. Verse 6, and the remnant, the rest, took his servants. These are the soul winners. These are the servants of God that give the gospel and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Let me remind you that when you mistreat God's servants, you're barking up the wrong tree as far as God is concerned. The king got really angry here, verse 7. He was wroth. He was incensed. Did you know Jesus takes personally the way we treat his servants? When Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus and his whole intent was to arrest Believers there, those are the followers of the way, and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial, and if he had anything to do with it, have them executed. But he was struck by a bright light from heaven. He heard a voice. What did the voice say? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Wait a minute. He didn't think he was doing anything against Jesus. He was just going after Jesus' people. But Jesus implicates himself with his people. Jesus told the twelve when He sent them on that first short-term missions trip, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He said a little bit later, according to John chapter 15, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake. He that hateth me hateth my Father also. Those are select verses from that great chapter. 
Now, in order to understand the seriousness of this spurning of the invitation, you need to realize that actually three invitations are in view here. We're a little bit familiar with this because usually before we send a formal invitation, we send a save the date card, right? It wasn't exactly that here, but you get the idea. The first invitation was referred to in verse 3 when the response was, they would not come. They would not come. According to the culture in the East at this time, a preliminary invitation would be sent out, leaving the exact day and hour TBD, to be determined when the feast was actually ready. But the second invitation was more detailed and urgent. We read about that in verse 4. All things are ready, come unto the marriage. A refusal here was really an insult when these people made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. But a third invitation is alluded to in verses 8 through 10, when the king says to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall, shall find, bid or invite to the marriage. And when you examine the context, especially of the prior verses, you see that the obvious reference is primarily to Israel, especially in the invitation. It was Israel who had rejected the multiple prophets God sent them during the Old Testament dispensation. Jesus talked about that in the very next chapter, chapter 23. Stephen, his martyr, followed up with that right before the stones descended upon him and crushed out his life as he spoke to the Jewish people who were about to kill him. And he said in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Which of the fathers? I mean, a whole string of them, and yet they were such hypocrites, the Jewish people at this time, that they decorated the tombs of the very prophets their fathers had rejected. Wow. How much more of a hypocrite can you be? But lest you think, well, I, that doesn't affect me, I'm a Gentile. Gentiles don't come off squeaky clean here either. Surely they are represented by the ones found in the highways. It talks about the highways here. By the way, Rome, and Rome was a Gentile empire. Rome was renowned for its elaborate highway construction. And it talks about the good and the bad who responded to this third invitation. And I don't have time to go into that. I think it probably refers to their moral character, but even if that's a reference to their outward moral character, at least one who responded among these who were good and bad to come to the, to the wedding feast refused the required wedding garment. But before I leave that point and get on with something else, I'm get ahead of myself here. I just want to emphasize, don't make light of God's messengers. God takes that personally. And I'm going to say something that's directed to this independent, fundamental Baptist church. I know who I'm speaking to. I've been around the block a few times. I'm a little bit older than I look. I hope you think that. And here in affluent America, in the buckle of the Bible belt... We have, as Patch the Pirate would say, click clubs that form even in fundamental churches. And we've come to think that God's servants who 
or hellfire and brimstone preachers and come across as a little uncouth and a little sensational and a little legalistic and eccentric, we just kind of smile condescendingly at them. God help us. God help us. What would you have thought of John the Baptist? Boy, it's getting quiet. He was not the cool preacher of his day. If he were living and ministering today, he would not be the popular TV preacher in skinny jeans and a t-shirt. Oh, it's real quiet. He was unorthodox. He was extreme. The in crowd did not want to be baptized by him, but he had the power of God upon him. He was owned by God. And he received the rare commendation of the one for whom he was the forerunner. What did Jesus say about John the Baptist, this eccentric preacher? He said, I tell you, among those born of women, there hath not arisen a greater. Don't make light of God's messengers who seem a little bit strange. But they're bold. When I hear a street preacher say, I was out in Montana to see my daughter and son-in-law. And I heard a street preacher out there in, maybe it was Helena or one of the larger cities, which aren't that large by our standards. And people were making fun of him. But I heard him say some true things about Jesus. And I wanted to shout. What happened to those who refused the two invitations and made light of the king's servants who conveyed them? Look at verse 7. They were severely judged. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And that literally happened to Israel in 70 A.D. and in some parts of Israel even the years leading up to 70 A.D. But the armies of Rome descended upon Palestine and killed thousands of Jews and raised Jerusalem by fire to the ground. And if you're discerning, you might be saying, well, but yeah, but it doesn't say Rome's armies. This king refers to them as or the Bible, Jesus refers to them, to them as his armies, the armies of the king. Wait a minute. The armies of Rome were just the rod of God's anger. Just as centuries earlier, Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldean, the Babylonian hordes, were God's servants to judge his people and take them captive for 70 years. Don't miss that. Well, there's a second category of Christ rejectors. I must hasten. Time is fleeting. It's one minute to 12, in case you were wondering. That means absolutely nothing, but anyway. The second category of Christ rejectors is those who wear unacceptable attire. This is not one of those fairy tales where everybody lives happily ever after. I told you that already. The judgment just keeps getting worse. Verses 11 through 14 seem to be a separate parable. I won't read them in their entirety. I'll read the verses as I come to them. But they constitute an integral part of this parable. It's not a separate parable. 
But Jesus introduces part B of this parable with the words in verse 11, and when the king came in to see his guests. I love that. Here is the climax of the whole feast. What a privilege. The greatest one of the whole feast, the king himself came to see the guests. He didn't just provide the banquet and leave the guests to eat by themselves. I'm glad God comes to every true gathering of His church. He inhabits the praises of His people. What a wonderful thing last Sunday night to have a singspiration, a praise service. And I've, I've been thinking about the, the note we finished on all week long. It's blessed my heart. We sang at the close, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Does that captivate you? Does that tantalize you? Oh, let's praise Him. God's among us when we praise Him. He came. The King came. He looked. He saw. Oh, they saw Him, but we see Him through a glass darkly. Through the gospel in this age, one day we'll see him face to face. But right now we see him darkly. He saw what the guests were wearing. And he noticed that one man was not wearing what he was supposed to. The required wedding attire furnished. We don't know this for a fact, but perhaps the other guests did not notice. Maybe what he was wearing was very close to the required attire. But it was something he had put on. He had furnished, not the king. And if so, that reminds us that Jesus said, don't worry about the tares among the wheat. I'll take care of that at the end of the age. In Matthew 15, verse 13, every plant that my father hath not planted shall be rooted up. I've been around a long time and I've seen some people that I thought better of who just Turn their backs on God and follow Jesus no more. I'm shocked. Remember, this is the king himself. This is not his son. And that's why this is not the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is not talking about the second coming. The king has not yet made his debut. There are times and ways in which God himself exposes and judges hypocrites even before the last judgment. There are times when, and this has happened many times in the history of revival, when God visits His church in solemn seasons. There are times when the spiritual temperature of the church of the living God is raised so white hot that as in the book of Acts, one couple who even tried to lie to the Holy Ghost was exposed and judged right on the spot. If God did that today, how many of us would be left? Why was there such severe judgment upon this one man? What was so egregious about this hypocrite? Mention three things very quickly. Won't be as long as the three things on the first point. But I hope the Lord will speak to our hearts. What was so egregious about this man not having on the wedding garment? First of all, he was rebelling against the rules of the palace. He was an enemy at the feast. 
And again, we need to be reminded that the enemies of God and of Christ are not just the ones outside the church. Sometimes they're the ones in it. While some refuse to come to the wedding of his son, others press into the banquet, but they're still his foes. And I'm glad we can go back to 2 Timothy 2.19 and remember what that says, what Paul told Timothy. Nevertheless, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Nobody's going to sneak in the back door of heaven. The Lord knoweth them that are His. The other guests here cheerfully put on the required wedding garment, but this man did not. This was inexcusable. He was a rebel. He defied the rules of the palace. He operated under his own rules. The attitude of his heart is expressed by another man in another parable. Luke 19 verse 14, I will not have this man to rule over me. So he wasn't going to keep the commands of the palace. Now, I remind you, the Bible says in 1 John that the commands of God are not grievous. They're not burdensome. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If a man love me, my Father will come in unto him. He'll keep my commandments. You won't chafe at God's commands. You won't talk about your liberty in Christ in that sense. You won't try to go rogue. You'll gladly, cheerfully keep the commandments of Jesus. But the offense of this man was egregious, secondly, because he respected not the prince, the king's son. Why was there a prescribed wedding garment in the first place? It was to honor the son. Think about that. Nobody else in the crowd would stand out if everybody had on the same thing. I love that song we finished with last week, The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. I know when we lose a loved one, I've lost several. We can't wait to see them again. I praise God for that. But beloved, when we get to heaven, we're going to be fixated on one. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. We must honor the Son. This man came in with other invited guests, and he wasn't about to yield any homage to the prince. He was still a rebel at heart. Yet the Bible says in that marvelous messianic psalm we've already quoted from, the second psalm, verse 12, the last verse of that chapter, kiss the Son, give homage to the Son, pay respect to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Why did this man come at all? Have you ever thought about that? Why are there hypocrites in the church? The answer is part of this, what Paul talks about, is the mystery of iniquity. There are people who desire the best of both worlds, don't they? They're kind of like Balaam, the false prophet in the Old Testament, who said, let me die the death of the righteous. But he loved the wages of unrighteousness. There are people who love Christian respectability, but they want to bear no stigma, no reproach for Christ. They refuse to submit to His rules and His Lordship. 
So I ask you to examine your heart this morning. Do you truly love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity? This man respected not the prince, but thirdly and finally, he relied on his own self-righteousness. What does this wedding garment stand for? I know the Bible doesn't say this clearly in this place, but clothing in the Bible typically stands for different kinds of righteousness. There's the fine linen we read about at the beginning of the service there in Revelation chapter 19. The fine linen is the righteousness of saints. This is that in which the bride of Christ will be arrayed at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is not her inherent righteousness. The righteousness that you and I have, if it's any valid righteousness at all, it's not something we came up with. It is an alien righteousness. It is a borrowed righteousness. It is an imputed righteousness. It is accredited righteousness. But I want you to see the righteousness God does not recognize, of which this man was guilty. If you'll take your Bibles, turn to one other verse. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. It's the filthy rags of self-righteousness. The filthy rags of self-righteousness. Isaiah 64, and verse 6. The prophet says by inspiration, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, plural, are as filthy rags. The King James is modest here. It really refers to menstruous cloths. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Beloved, that's how God sees, are you listening, the very best that we can produce. What does He think of our worst? This is what sinful man has tried to do from the beginning, cover his sin. You know what happened with our first parents in the Garden of Eden. As soon as they sinned, they were guilty. They knew they had to cover their nakedness. They didn't even realize they were naked before then. So they, Adam and Eve sewed little fig leaf aprons, and God saw right through them. He sees right through your efforts to cover your sin. And so God Himself slew an innocent animal. God Himself brought the skins and covered Adam and Eve. He did it all! What a beautiful picture of the spotless Lamb of God slain for us who takes upon Him our sin but gives us His righteousness the only righteousness that God will recognize. I'm almost done. A word of warning here, too, just like with the first category of Christ rejectors. This parable finishes on a somber note, verse 13. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, this man that didn't have on the wedding garment. And take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He was speechless. His mouth was stopped. 
Oh, I witness to some people these days, and they're not speechless. I can barely get a word in edgewise. And they have more excuses for not being saved than Carter has liver, liver pills. But let me tell you, when they stand before the judge, they'll be speechless. The secrets of men's hearts will be revealed. And God will instruct that they are to be taken hand and foot, cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This isn't a Baptist purgatory. This is hell. And the inspired commentary from the lips of our Savior is found in verse 14. With this I'm done. For many are called, but few are chosen. Don't be afraid of that verse. Some people get all nervous about that verse. And if I read it, they think, oh, he's going to talk about predestination and election. Don't be afraid of that verse. This is what we need to take away from it. We can know that we are chosen. We can know that we are chosen. We can make our calling and election sure, to use the Praise of the inspired Apostle Peter. How? Here's how. By receiving by faith the free gift of the wedding garment of Christ's imputed righteousness. That's how we know that we are chosen in Him from the foundation of the world. Don't try to reason past that. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can sing, as we did at the beginning of the service, that last stanza, when He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. God is not going to miss even one who doesn't have that spotless wedding garment on. What are you wearing this morning? How does God see you? Let's pray. Oh, righteous Father, help us each one to honestly examine our standing before you in the light of your word and your spirit. Oh, we can fool men, but we can't fool you. Lord, conquer our rebel hearts. Let all sham and pretense and hypocrisy be put aside. Help us to come clean with you. You see us as we really are. May we put on the Lord Jesus Christ as our only righteousness so that we will be faultless to stand before the throne. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.